When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. This show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, So I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers. And each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you're interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, I am chatting with Peter Heller about The Last Ranger. Peter is the national bestselling author of The Guide, The River, Celine, The Painter, and The Dog Stars. He is also the author of four nonfiction books. He holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop in Poetry and Fiction and lives in Denver, Colorado. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Peter. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I am so glad you're here because I absolutely loved The Last Ranger. And then as soon as I read it, I passed it to my husband, and he also absolutely loved it. So I'm thrilled to pieces to get to chat with you. Great, great, great. Me too. So the first thing I usually do is have an author give me a quick synopsis of the book. Can you do that? Sure. Uh, the Last Ranger is about an enforcement park national park ranger in Yellowstone uh, who likes wolves better than people. And he's, he's sort of uh, lost in his life He's in, at the moment. He's in his mid-30s. And um, he's sort of taken this job to reconnect with nature. He loves to fish. He loves wild country. And um, there he is in the middle of the Lamar Valley. That's where he lives in a little log cabin, which is the Serengeti of the United States. That's what it's been called. And it's this valley way up in the northeast corner of Yellowstone. 
where the wolves were first reintroduced in 1995 and have now established some healthy packs. Uh, it's a great uh, wildlife reintrodu reintroduction story. And so uh, Ren Hopper, our ranger, lives in a log cabin in this ranger station that's called the Buffalo Ranch. And uh, his only neighbor is Hilly, and she is a famous wolf biologist who lives just above him. And she really likes wolves better than people. She can't stand most people, even though she's on Nova and National Geographic Channel and the History Channel. Uh, in stories about wolves. Uh, she's really a famous biologist, but she only does that stuff to sort of advocate for her packs. And she's a serious scientist and she likes Wren and will early in the morning, sometimes just at first light, stop by his cabin on the way down to her truck and they'll have coffee on the porch as they're looking out over the valley. The valley is a shallow river that runs through meadows, hemmed in on either side by steep slopes of black timber and rim rock, and there's often herds of elk and deer and, and wolves. So it begins uh, there, and uh, there's a little town 20 minutes up the road called Cook City, Montana, just outside the park boundary. And it's a really tiny town, just sort of a main street with a highway running through it. And I'd say half the population there are sick of tourists because they, they work 16 hours a day catering to them uh, during the summer. And um, half of them, probably that half, uh, sort of resent the national park and kind of wish it was all open for hunting and logging and all of that. So it's a very interesting dynamic, and that's how the book begins. Well, before I dive into my questions, you have something you want to share with my listeners. Yeah, I thought maybe I would just read a paragraph uh, towards the beginning of the book. Here we go. Hilly's truck was not in the turnaround. Sometimes she stayed out late to observe nocturnal hunting behaviors and didn't get in till the middle of the night. He dropped his pack on the porch and pulled out his wet gear. He hung his waders from a nail on a porch post and left his fishing boots on the top step. He had his hand on the screen door when he heard it, very faint. He held his breath and turned an ear and listened, far off but clear, the strain of a single wolf, two barks testing the night, almost like a tuning, the confirming plucks of a string, and then a rising resonant howl that froze the stars in place and dropped and hollowed like a woodwind and crescendoed again. The night went taut like a drumskin, as if the solitary wolf had willed all of creation into a sounding board or bout for his song. That's what it was, music. It rooted Wren to the floorboards. The cry climbed and thinned and wavered. It held desolation and yearning and joy all together, somehow. The hairs on the back of Wren's neck stood up. He wondered if it did the same for the others in the pack, raised their hackles, but not in anger, in ferocious love, because as another wolf lifted her voice in answer, she was much closer, somewhere at the base of Druid Peak. And as another and another loosed a pitch cry from across the valley, that's the way it sounded, like the most desolate, life-affirming love. Well, the wolf aspect of your story is the reason I first picked up your book. I have been completely fascinated with the wolf reintroduction to Yellowstone 
I read American Wolf. I've read anything I can about it. I would love to visit and be able to see the wolves. And that is on my bucket list at some point. And that just completely drew me to your story. So that's the perfect passage to read. (laughs) Great. (laughs) How did you become interested in that? So I got an assignment a few years ago from Condé Nast Traveler to write a story about the wolves up in the Lamar Valley. And, you know, I went on a wildlife tour. Uh, My wife and I did for, I think, something like five days. And it was at the time of year that the book is set in. It was sort of, I think it was late September. And we went out, I remember being struck by the beauty of the valley. And then we came out early in the morning, right at first light, maybe in the dark. And we set spotting scopes up on a hill, aimed across the river. And the first light came up and there was a herd of elk. And then I saw wolves at the edge of the trees. And this wildness, this sense of wildness just prickled over my skin. And I'd never really experienced anything like it. It was so moving. And for the next five days, you know, in this very wild and beautiful place, we got to observe the pack at this rendezvous point in this meadow across the valley and watch the pups, you know, tumble and play, watch pairs of wolves come in uh, from downstream early in the morning with meat, you know, that they, you know, from a kill, bringing it back to the pups. I just became completely fascinated. And so over the next couple of years, the last few years, I have camped in the Lamar Valley in September and hiked up these tributary creeks to fish and watch the wolves whenever I can. I, I just love it. You know, when I first went to Yellowstone, I thought it was going to be like Jellystone, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> sort of cartoonish and a big circus. And, and it really is, you know, along the main roads, those narrow kind of two lane roads. You know, if even a marmot, you know, crosses the road or is, is visible, then, you know, there's a traffic jam and, you know, to say nothing of a herd of bison or whatever. And so it is kind of crazy that way. But, you know, once I found that once I sort of hike up a trail along a tributary creek and I get a mile, actually, I get half a mile away from the road, I don't see anybody. And I can spend all day up in a meadow fishing and there'll be a bison, you know, chomping grass, grazing right beside me, basically. And uh, I'll see grizzly bears sometimes at the edge of the trees grubbing for stuff. And it's, it's just fantastic. I just love it. And so that's sort of where this book, the book sort of, I think, came out of that, that adoration of the place and being there. Well, the interesting part for me was I started with the interest in the wolves, and I loved that part of the story. But we spend a lot of time in Rocky Mountain National Park every summer. And parts of your story really resonated with me with respect to that in terms of Ren being a ranger and the things he has to deal with, like the moose and the family that gets way too close to it. I mean, we see that every single summer. And Rocky Mountain has now implemented this ticketed entry, which angers both locals and some visitors. And the rangers are having to turn around more people than they're letting in. You know, they've got signs everywhere. They've got stuff on their website. Still, people try to come in. And I just think these rangers must have more patience than Job. I mean, I just can't even imagine. I'd be like, come on, people, can you not read? You know, and I just think it would be a really difficult job to have these days. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I think it's hard for Ren. And I think when we catch him, you know, in September at the end of the summer, I think he's kind of burned out. Sure. You know, at the very beginning, he kind of wishes 
of the book. He kind of wishes that all the tourists would just go home and leave the animals and the forests and the meadows, you know, on their own. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, he has to question himself, you know, what am I doing in this service job if, you know, I really wish everybody would just leave. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think there's also different types of tourists. I mean, there's some tourists who know what they're doing and they follow the rules and they kind of go along and do what they're supposed to do. And then you have these people who should be following the rules, should know the rules, but just go ahead and do whatever they want to do. And I'm sure those are the people that after a while Ren's thinking, come on. And then also there is the local dynamic versus the park and how you deal with that. And people are unhappy with him because of his role as a ranger at the park. So there's just a lot of interesting things that are playing out in the real world and in your book. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, you know, I, I always start with the first line. I never know where I am because I, I came up as a poet. I was much more interested in the music of the language than, you know, any kind of plot. And so uh, in this book, you know, the first line was the night of the buffalo, it rained. And then it was, I think, hard flooding the creek for hours as if trying to wash away the stain. And I just like the sound of those two sentences. And pretty soon it, you know, it occurred to me that here I was in one of my favorite places on the planet. And here was this ranger who I, who I liked. I mean, I, I sort of related to. <laughs> he liked to fish. He really liked to spend time by himself. He enjoyed some people. And um, it was, you know, thrilling for me then to, you know, find myself, you know, parachuting into this place. And pretty pretty quickly, as often happens in the books, and I don't really mean it to, there was a, you know, a really menacing conflict. And, um, you know, that was fun to get, get hooked into that narrative. Definitely. And I don't want to spoil anything, but I thought that the conflict was really interesting because it is also very timely. I think there is so much division today. And you brought that into your story. Yeah, I kind of have to. I mean, you know, I don't know when you, you know, when, when you use the method that I used to write a novel where you just sort of follow your nose and the language into the story, you know, what I find is that within a few pages or a chapter, I end up bumping into whatever is on, really on my heart or what I'm really concerned about or what I've been thinking about. And so I think, you know, the, the, the divisions that we're all, you know, we're all in, we're not just bearing witness that we're all caught up in. You know, I think that had to inform this story. So when you start writing, you haven't laid anything out. You just sit down and start writing. Yeah, I want to have as much fun as my readers, you know. And um, not not only, you know, did I come up as a as a poet where, you know, music was important. I, I, I was a river runner my whole life and um, kayaking, you know, stuff all, all over the place. And um what happens when you're, you know, when you're running a river that has never been described or you, you don't know, you, you, you're on this current, you come around a tight bend, maybe in a, in a, in a gorge or a canyon, and you don't know what's going to be there. You know, it could be a waterfall and you better, you know, catch an eddy and pull out and take a look, or it could be a cougar drinking or a flight of swallows backlit. That's just so beautiful. And it's just, I love that about about kayaking rivers. I just, I love that part of it, the sort of surprise and the, you, you know, that feeling of adventure and exploration into new territory. And so, you know, for me, having, uh, writing a novel, have it be like running a river that's unknown is so thrilling. You know, it's so fun, you know, to bring, you know, have it be like an expedition for me when I'm, when I'm writing it at night, you know, stuff will happen. I'll be in my coffee shop and, um, you know, I have tears just streaming on, off my chin onto the table. 
and I know people there are sort of looking and thinking, that poor son of a bitch is going through a bad <laughs> divorce or whatever. Exactly. I was just going to say they're coming over like, are you okay? Yeah. But really what's happening is I'm just totally immersed and I, you know, I'm being carried by that narrative current and, and something's just happened that surprised me. And what's really happening is I'm sort of more thrilled than I've ever been in my life. So it's, it's a really fun process. Not to say that I don't, you know, get it run into cul-de-sacs like every writer and I might, you know, throw out a lifeline, call a friend, call my editor, Jenny Jackson, say, hey, what do you think I should do now? <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I will think about, you know, generally blocking a story out, you know, out ahead a little bit. But but mostly I just let it let it run. It's sort of like being on a mountain horse who, who knows who knows the way, just giving the horse its head. Does that mean you have to edit a lot more or do you just flow in the right direction like the mountain horse and end up where you need to be? Uh, you, usually I end up where I need to be. Sometimes, uh, you know, my I have really good first readers and I'll read blocks of my novel aloud out uh, to my to my wife, Kim, and she has an impeccable sense of story and character and she she can feel right where the soft spots are right away. And so that's super helpful. And often, you know, I'll be reading aloud to her and she'll nod off at the end of the couch and go, too much fishing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You're like, not enough fishing. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. But she's, I know she's always right because she's, you know, I, I, she's the stand in for the general reader, you know? And so, uh, but anyway, and then I have a couple of other first readers, uh, Lisa Jones, Helen Thorpe, Donna Gersten. They're super helpful. And then it goes to my agent. He, re he will do a line edit and might have me do some work. So by the time it gets to Jenny, it's, it's in pretty good shape. And she'll, you know, she'll often say, okay, I'd like to, you know, move this scene up, or I'd like to, can you develop this just a little bit more? And can we, can we have a scene here that, you know, involves these characters so that this becomes clear and it'll be something like that. And I'm very fast. So usually I can do that stuff in a few days and then, you know, then, then it's done. That's great. Because I just can't even imagine trying to sit down with a blank page and write like that. And I knew if I did it, I would have to just be editing and editing and editing. Well, the 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 downfall of doing it like the, the way I do it is that you make a lot of false starts. So I will spend, you know, a couple of weeks, usually two or three weeks, just um, making starts, throwing them out, telling myself, you know, that I don't have another novel in me, you know, I, you know, I, I can't do this. There's no story. I got nothing to say. <laughs> I do that. And I've done it, you know, six, seven, eight times now. And, um, I know that that's what I do. And then somehow, you know, within, you know, a couple of weeks, I'll, I'll hit a first line that really sings. And there's a voice that I feel like sticking with, but sometimes I won't know for like a week, you know, I'll write along and then think, mm, I don't really want to hang out with this character or this voice or this place or this this situation, which is not yet a story, I don't want to really hang out with that for months at a, you know for the next few months. So, so I do make false starts, and you know if you if you plot, if you have an outline, then you have a map. You know you have your roadmap, and you know you. I, I don't think you'd make so many false starts. But once I once I get on that voice, and once I'm in a place that I love, and that you know there's characters I love, and and an interesting situation, then you know pretty much pretty much I'm gone. And I write a thousand words every day and, and seven days a week. And that's how we do it. That's amazing. 
Well, did anybody inspire Ren? I think Ren is sort of an amalgam of, you know, all sorts of people that I know. And I think there's a lot of Ren that's that I relate to, you know, I'm not saying he, he's not me. Uh, he's, he's a much better fisherman than I am. <laughs> and he's probably more, even more patient than I am with people. But, but I, I sort of like the things that he likes and, you know, I, I have a version for things that he, you know, that he doesn't like and uh, a way of kind of looking at the world that I relate to. So uh, I think, he, you know, we are sort of close that way. So you write the book and then you go out into the world and tour. Do readers respond to different things than you expect them to? Do they respond to the things that you think they will? What is that like for you, like with The Last Ranger? You know, it's always, you know, it always feels like a crapshoot. I mean, you know, you, you, you select, I've launched every book at this wonderful bookstore called The Tattered, a kind of iconic bookstore in Denver called The Tattered Cover. Every one of my books has been launched there. And it's a hometown crowd for sure. Uh, they're pretty forgiving. But I, I choose, you know, the sections that I'm going to read aloud. And, and usually I, I don't try and read a ton. Uh, usually it's like 15 minutes of reading all told and then a lot of, of stories and questions. It's, a, you know, discussion. It's really fun. But this book, I felt like I wanted to read more. I read like half an hour's worth, which is a lot for me. And um, it was, re- you know, it was really fun. I was a little nervous about, you know, could they, could they take it? <laughs> I read like the prologue and a couple pages of chapter one and then some scenes and they they loved it. And so I was so happy. And then, you know, on tour, I just decided to trim it down because I knew, you know, you know, I can't, you know, you can do one thing with family and then another thing with, you know, your general readership. So uh, I did I did trim the readings, but uh, people did really seem to enjoy the ones that I chose. So that, that that's always nice. Well, and I was telling you before we started recording that I had visited the Boulder Bookstore right before you were going to be there, like days before you were there on your tour. So I thought, oh, look, there he is. We're getting ready to chat soon. So it has to be fun when the book's been out for a little bit and people come because then sometimes people have already read it. Yeah, yeah, super fun. Oh, the night at the Boulder Bookstore was just crazy. It was it was actually the largest crowd they've ever had in the store. Usually when it gets to 100, it was like 120 people. And, and when it you know, when it gets up that high, they switch over to the auditorium or whatever at the main library. But they, you know, they were turning people away and there was like 120 people. And these are all people that were, you know, really big fans of the work. And, um, you know, some of them had read the book and uh, it was a, it was a radio broadcast. And so it was, it was just super, super fun. I, I loved it. I just always think it must be so interesting to take the time to write a book and put your heart and soul into it. And then to listen to what readers have to say. And there have to be some things that you think, I just know they're going to love Ren, but then also have things that they're pointing out that you're like, oh, I did not think that's something that somebody would be interested in or that that might resonate with someone or something. And it must be kind of interesting just to hear what people have to say back to you. Yeah, yeah. I especially love the questions. I mean, um, you know, people do almost every time people ask questions that nobody has ever asked. <laughs> and I don't know that I'll be able to come up with one right now, but, you know, it keeps you on your toes. You can't, you know, you just can't have pat answers. And all of a sudden, some question will come winging in and, you know, I'll be surprised. It's really fun. I, I love that part. Well, I was thinking that too, when you were talking about spending time with a character and writing the book, it's not even just the time that you spend writing it, but then when it gets out into the world, you're touring, you're talking to readers. So you really do want to make sure you're spending time with a character and a place that you want to, because it's going to be with you for quite some time. 
Yeah, exactly. And here's the strange thing about fiction, I think, for fiction writers, and uh, I don't think it's just me, is that, you know, the characters that you write in the novels, the ma- you know, the major characters, they live in your emotional landscape and they live in your heart like, you know, family and friends that you've had. And, you know, like Jasper from the Dog Stars, he lives in my heart like a dog that I've had. I mean, you know, I think about him and I sort of grieve him sometimes and, you know, wish we could hang out again. And it's really strange. I mean, and it, and it occurs to me that novelists have this access, you know, to these other worlds, these these other people that are imaginary that we call characters, these voices sometimes. And it occurs to me that, you know, maybe 150, 200 years ago, we might be in a padded cell for hearing voices. <laughs> I you know, I don't know. But now we get to write a novel and be on tour. And, you know, it's, it's really fun. I'm a very oral writer. Like I, I sort of hear the lines and I hear the dialogue, you know, before I put it down. I think that's so cool because I am not that way at all. And I'm not a writer. But I just think it would be so cool to be able to hear that stuff. And I've had authors tell me, like, I think about my characters long after I'm done with the book and I wonder what they're doing. And then I ask other authors that and they're like, no. (laughs) So I think it must just depend on the author. But, you know, some people are like, yes, I continue to think about my characters. And others are like, no, I just put them to bed. But even as a reader, I mean, to me, that's the hallmark of a really great book. If I am done with it and I am still thinking about those characters and what they did and how they impacted me months later. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's what we all hope for as as writers of these things, you know, that that it will change people in some way. And, you know, my dearest hope for this book and and it and I've read it in some of the reviews and stuff. And so it's gratifying is that it will make people it will make people, my readers, think about our relationship with the natural world and our relationship with other species and our place, you know, on the planet and in the universe, you know, as just another species sharing this planet, you know, with those responsibilities. And, um, you know, this idea that all the other species, you know, whether it's a harrier flushing mice over the meadows, a hawk or a caterpillar or a trout or a grizzly bear or a wolf that, you know, all of us have the same right to be here and to try and make a living. Absolutely. It made me want to just buy a ton of copies and pass it out to people at Rocky Mountain and be like, okay, this is, read this book so you understand what it's like to behave in a national park. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and how important it is to respect the earth. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's my hope is that that's what people take, take away from it. And I, th- I, th- I think some people are so good. Yes, for sure. Exactly. I was like, yes. What surprised you the most when you were writing the book? What surprised me the most was that, so there's a bad guy in the book and his name is Les Ingram. And as, you know, Les, you know, continued to comport himself in questionable ways through the book and get into, you know, um, more and more intense conflict with my, with, with some of my other characters. What surprised me was that Les was not that much different, you know, in his essential character than my hero, Ren. And I, I love that. I love that there was sort of this Venn diagram where they overlap. And I love that, you know, good people uh, aren't always completely good and that, you know, the people we think of as bad people aren't always completely bad and that everybody has their reasons for doing what they do. And, um, I just, I just loved how that revealed itself. 
as the narrative went on. I agree with that completely. And my husband and I actually talked about that for a long time after we both finished the book. And I don't, again, want to have any spoilers, but we talked a lot about the way the book resolved and Les and his character and how Ren handled things. It definitely made for a very genuine and realistic storyline, but also something that was worth spending a lot of time talking about. Oh, great. That that makes me happy. <laughs> yes. oh, I thought that was very good. I really liked the way you handled that. Oh, thank you. Well, tell me about the cover. I'm a huge cover person. I thought your cover was beautifully, beautifully done. How did that come about? Well, I just have the most amazing, you know, cover designer in the world at Knopf. And um, so I think, you know, I think Kelly has done every single one of my covers. She reads the book and she just somehow, I don't know, she, she somehow finds a way to distill it, to make it exciting visually, you know, with, and her name is Kelly Blair. And um, I, just, I just love all of her covers. And this one especially struck me because there was something that looked like uh, Yellowstone Canyon. And then it's got this silhouette of a wolf howling, you know, this black silhouette in the foreground up on a spur on a bluff. and it's the colors are just so beautiful. They're sort of earthy ochres and pastel blues, and you can see a distant ridge in the background. And I, I just, I just love it. It's always fun, you know. Books are cool because they're not, you know, it's not the stories. You know, it's not an audio book. A book is an artifact. You know, it has heft. It has dimension. It can be uh, visually arresting. And I, and I love books themselves as works of art. And I, I think this one is. It's really exciting for me. I agree with that. She definitely captured the essence of the book. I love to look at a cover, read the book, and then look at the cover again just to see if everything matches up. And I just feel like that she definitely captured your story with this cover. Oh, that's neat. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. That's a, that's a good thing to do. <laughs> anyway. It is because I think sometimes a cover can be beautiful on its own. But then you read the book and you're like, I don't really see the connection with this cover in this book. Like I can like the inside and I can like the outside, but I don't see how they go together. And so I like it when they go together. So yours goes together quite well. Nice. Passes my test. <laughs> Yay. Well, Peter, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Uh, I am reading right now. Uh, I love the cover on this too. I'm reading The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. And I, I just... I love McBride. You know, um, during COVID, I think is when I, I came late to the party, but I read Deacon King Kong, I think during COVID. And I had, you know, been sick for a couple of weeks and it wasn't that fun. I was at home and I read that book and it just cheered me up so much. It was so beautiful and so fun and funny and so full of heart. So that's what I'm reading right now. And uh, yeah, I have, you know, of course, a stack that I, I need to get to. but. Isn't that always the case? My stack is just so much larger than I could ever get to, but it just continues to grow. I know, I know. Um, I got to read Russo's new book, Richard Russo. Um, I had dinner with him the other night at a book festival in Mississippi, and he was so, I'd met him before in passing, but I'd never sat down and talked with him for a couple hours. And he he was so down to earth and so humble. And what he was really most excited about was his daughter's fiction that she's writing. And, uh, you know, he was such a sweet person. And so uh, I definitely need to read his new book, too. I love his books, and I'm really excited for his new one as well. Yeah. 
Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Ah, it was such a pleasure. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts from a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.